Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's Life Ministry. We're sharing the stories and insights of real people living out God's love for the people He's created. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Steph Nugebauer, and I have my co-host here today, Director of Life Ministry, Deaconess Dr. Tiffany Manor, and we both have the privilege of hosting our guest, Cheryl Magnus. Cheryl and Tiffany both bring unique perspectives and wisdom to our topic today, and that is the topic of caring for aging parents. The questions we'll be asking here are, what does it look like to move an aging parent into your own home, into your own adult space? How does one go about this faithfully? How does it affect the parent-child relationship when children find themselves in the role of caretaker for their parents? So we'll get into all of this and more, but for now, Cheryl, would you introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Cheryl Magnus, and I am the managing editor of Reporter, which is the official newspaper of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. I've been doing that job amazingly to me for about five years now, going on five years now. I'm also married to Philip who is a cantor, a director of parish music in the LCMS. He currently has a dual call as a missionary to Francophone Africa. So he makes several trips a year to um, teach in French-speaking areas of primarily West Africa um, about hymnody, liturgy, church music, that sort of thing. He's also a half-time cantor at Village Lutheran Church in Ladue, Missouri. We have three children. I guess they are now three adult children. My oldest is going to turn 30 this year, um, middle daughter, 25, and then I have a high school graduate in just a few weeks who is 18. I studied as a music major initially in college and got a degree in piano, where I met my husband, but eventually turned to English as more of my career goal and career pursuit. So I've done a lot of piano playing freelance on the side at church over the years. Here in the International Center, if you ever tune in for our daily chapel and you hear the piano being played, it's probably Cheryl and she's amazing, very (laughs) gifted. I do do some playing here as well. But professionally, I've primarily been an English teacher, spent a lot of years as a homeschool mom, and then sort of found my way a little bit later in life into doing some professional writing, which um, has been a joy and a blessing. And now here I am with a full-time job as a writer, which I would never have predicted, but I'm really happy to be here. So why did you say amazingly it's been five years? Does it it feel like a long time or a short time to be in your position now as editor? It actually feels like kind of a short time. I don't know. It depends on how you look at it. You know, if I look at the whole five years, it seems like it's gone whizzing by, which happens as you get older. (laughs) True. Um, But then if I look at everything that has happened during that five-year period, it seems like it's longer than that. So yeah, it depends on your perspective. (laughs) Well, it's so good to have you here today and to see both of you in the same room being able to talk together, all three of us. Cheryl, you mentioned, of course, that you've been able to do some writing professionally in addition to your role with The Reporter. You've also contributed to a book. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So this was, I believe, about four years ago, Katie Shoreman reached out to me about contributing a chapter to a new book that she had in the planning stages. 
The book is called He Restores My Soul, and her vision for the book was that it would be centered around the 23rd Psalm, with each chapter of the book focusing on a verse of the psalm or taking its theme from a verse of the 23rd Psalm. So she asked me to take He Leads Me in Righteousness for His Name's Sake, specifically with the topic of um, the, the, the subtitle to the chapter was Getting Pastor Past. So she asked me as somebody who was not raised in the church, not raised in the Christian faith, largely, or at least for a good chunk of my childhood, to write about what it is like as a parent trying to raise your own children in the faith when you don't have that foundation of having been raised in the faith yourself. So I was baptized as an infant, but then went through a long period of time where my parents didn't take me to church. And then when I was actually confirmed, it was in the Roman Catholic Church because my mom sort of belatedly came to Roman Catholicism and she became Roman Catholic. I went through instruction with her when I was in junior high school. So I became Catholic. So I am a Lutheran by marriage. I met a Lutheran boy and married him and became a member of the LCMS. And in your chapter for He Restores My Soul, which um, we've also talked about in previous episodes, uh, namely with Deaconess Pamela um, when she was on earlier. But towards the end of that chapter, you also talk about caring for aging parents. It's just kind of the latter end of it. How has your experience caring for your parents, but especially your mom, mm -hmm. how has that colored and affected the way that you've written now since then? Well, interestingly enough, the very first article that I ever had published in a national news outlet, which was The Federalist, was on this very topic. So, you know, the fact that I had my mom in my home and was caring for her is I, I can say that that's kind of responsible for me, I guess, launching into more of a professional writing career. But the way that that came about was that I stumbled on an article. This was in 2014. I stumbled on an article written by a man named Ezekiel Emanuel, who is a medical doctor and at the time was a healthcare advisor to President Obama. The name of the article was why I want to die at 75 or something close to that. He's a healthy man, but he hoped that by the time that he was 75, that he would die a natural death. He did not advocate in the article euthanasia or assisted suicide or anything like that, but he suggested that there would come a point in his life when he would reject pretty much any kind of medical treatment or medical care. The reason being that he thinks that as we start to decline, as we start to weaken as we age, that we're less useful, we're more of a burden, and he would prefer to, you know, pass quickly, die sooner rather than later, instead of being a burden to his children and not being useful. So, as somebody that had my mom living with me at that time, she had been living with me for a number of years, and we were getting to the point that we were starting to think about the potential that we might be facing her death, you know, in the next five years, something like that. And she was weakening and declining somewhat. And this article just hit me in a very bad place. <laughs> I was like, this is really bad, really wrong. 
So I sat down and wrote a response, basically a rebuttal to it. I sent it off to the Federalist because I knew Molly Hemingway and I knew she was associated with the news outlet and thought, well, you know, at least here I know somebody. And to my surprise, they accepted it. That was sort of my entry into writing for a national news outlet. And that title uh, in 2014, so your response, your rebuttal, Why Mm -hmm. I Want to Live Long and Burden My Children, published in The Federalist. Kind of a catchy title, Why I Want to Burden My Children. (laughs) What does that mean exactly? Yeah, so it was a direct response to the Emanuel article, Why I Hope to Die at 75. So I sort of took that title and, and turned it around on its head and said, you know, why I hope to live long and burden my children. So the article talked about, well, I'll go back to the Emanuel article briefly. One of the things he talked about in his article was the fact that, I suppose it's the fact, I don't know, the perception that most of our great achievements, great creative works, those kinds of things happen when people are younger. And so this goes back to his argument that as people get older, they're less productive, less useful. I responded to that in my piece by saying, even if that's true, it doesn't matter because the value of life as we understand it as faithful Christians is not in a person's productivity or usefulness, their utility, what they're able to do, but simply in their status as a creation of our Lord. And so I think I ended the article saying that my mom, you know, sitting in her rocking chair, watching TV, sometimes being difficult, sometimes cantankerous, is no less valuable of being cared for and tended to and that life upheld than somebody that's, you know, writing the next great American novel. Oh, there's so much that can be said about that. You, you know, you brought up our, our American culture that's increasingly putting this idea that that life is valued only when we decide mm-hmm. it's it's valuable and, and worthy, and that prioritization of the prime of life and contributing to society. Where, I mean, even our English language is a counter response to that. Steph and I were you know, talking just a few days ago, and we were talking about how we're not human doings, <laughs> we're human beings, right? We're mm-hmm. humans because we exist, you know, so even even in an argument from a natural law kind of standpoint, mm-hmm. um, for someone who's not a Christian, and maybe they don't, you know, understand that we have a creator, but even the, the way we talk about ourselves expresses the idea that because we're alive and we're human, because we exist, that we ought to be valued, not on the basis of accomplishment, we need to keep speaking up to this in our culture and our society. So mm-hmm. thank you for doing that. I remember reading the article at the time and I've reread it since I'm um, very impactful, very, very valuable. But you know, even this the phrase, you know, I want to be a burden to my children. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's out there in society too. I don't want to be a burden to anyone. This American ideal of, you know, we're gonna be the self-made person, that's not a really helpful way of having your perspective of life. We're supposed to be in community with one another. We're supposed to be burdens on one another. And so we've got to counter that. We're all a burden to everyone else. So we, we need to kind of get over this. And I know I hear it in my own family. I hear mm-hmm. my mom says that to me often. I don't want to be a burden to you. And and so we've been saying, well, you know, mom, I've been a burden to you my whole life. Uh, my kids are burdens to me too. I'd be a burden on me. We're supposed to be burdens to one another. 
I had the exact same conversation with my mom multiple times. She said the same thing. I don't want to be a burden to you. And my response was exactly the same. You know, even, even if there were times that I wasn't, you know, sinful me <laughs> was feeling burdened. I repeatedly said to her, this is why I'm here. And as Tiffany pointed out, you know, how many years was I a burden and a responsibility to you, you know, 18, 19, 20 beyond, you know, here you are now. And I have the opportunity to do that for you. So the article talked about that and also talked about, you know, I, I was learning a lot from that experience of caring for my mom, you know, learning about caring for um, somebody else and learning about myself and my own sinful nature. And so I think that's a worthwhile experience for my children to have someday. And I'm sure that I will come to the point that I will feel the same way. I'll probably look at my own kids and say, I'm sorry, I don't want to be a burden to you. And I'll have to try to remember, or I'll ask them to remind me, remember that article you wrote, you know, <laughs> 40 years ago, maybe 30, if I'm thinking optimistically. Yeah. So antithetical to our culture is this fact that Christians as a community, a church, and then down to the family is codependent on each other and naturally are burdens to one another. It mm -hmm. even says in scripture in Galatians to bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And so it's something we're just called to do vocationally. And mm -hmm. then in your specific context, just as your mother and father bore, bore the burden of raising you and caring for you and changing your diapers and going to sporting events or whatever. Now on the flip side, you serve them through bringing them in, caring for them. This conversation isn't necessarily going to be about how you must bring your parents in when they're aging. Maybe they have needs that are beyond your capability to help. Maybe they need specialized care where they need to be in a nursing facility that specifically meets their needs, such as a dementia or 24-hour round-the-clock care by a, a professional nurse. But you are writing from the experience of taking your mother in for some 15 years. Mm -hmm. That's correct. So my dad was about 15 years older than my mom, and he died in 1994. So she was without him for quite a number of years. My mom died in 2016. So I'm thinking, you know, she was without him for over 20 years. So just to back up a little bit, I'm the youngest. I have a rather interesting family. I'm the youngest of a blended family of 11 children in all. Both my parents were married before and had children from previous marriages. So I was the, the one hours of a hers, his, and ours family. So by the time I was having children, most of my siblings were kind of already beyond that stage of their lives. And so I invited my mom to move to Illinois, where we were at the time, had met my husband and gotten married and had our first child in Texas, but then we'd moved off to Illinois, um, invited her to come and live in the same town and help me take care of my children, which she did. And when she initially moved to Illinois, she had her own place. Then it just seemed as she became a little bit, you know, less capable you know, this was even before she had declined a lot, but it just seemed to make more sense for her to go ahead. We had room, could save on expenses to have her go ahead and move in with us. And then she's there. And, you know, so I was blessed for so many years with a mom, not only in the same town, but for a period of time in the same house, built in babysitter for a number of years, you know, so I had this freedom to just 
go to the store if I felt like it and leave the kids with grandma. You know, so many young mothers don't have that luxury. I'm not suggesting that I owed her this because of the help that she gave me and caring for my children. But I mean, certainly that was in the back of my mind. It's like, what sort of daughter would I be if, you know, as soon as mom is less able to watch the children, then suddenly, you know, I'm not caring for her in the same way that I, that she's cared for me and cared for the, the children. My mom did not have Alzheimer's or any sort of chronic serious illness. Uh, it was just kind of a manner of weakening over time. She had osteoporosis. She was prone to urinary tract infections, depression. So over time became pretty housebound, did not go out very often. So lived with us for all those years up until the very end. She spent a number of times in rehab, nursing centers, that sort of thing. But one of the things that I'm most thankful for is that after a time in a nursing center, towards the end, we were able to bring her home and she did die in her room at home. So that was a great blessing. And Tiffany, now you're coming into this conversation with a unique perspective too. Tell us about that and kind of the beginning of your story here for your own family and for your mother. Oh, yeah. So I I love all of our, our podcast topics and, and guests, but some of them relate a little more closely and, and personally, and I'm, I'm sure the listeners find that as well, and, and you too, Steph. But my mom is about to move closer to us, and we all know in, in our family that we're on a path where she will likely be living in our home and spending out her older years, last years of her life with us. And, and we'll see what comes as far as her physical needs and where she needs to be. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up earlier, stuff about it's not that every family is able to have older generations live with them up till the, the very last um, breath that they take here on earth. I, and I don't, I don't know what that will mean for us, but when my husband and I were recently in the housing market looking for a home to purchase that we thought might be our retirement home, like our, our forever home, we intentionally went looking for a house that could either be remodeled or you know have a way to have older parents live with us mm-hmm. so we you know we did accomplish that and, and you know we were looking at things like you know stairs and access to the house and, and you know bathrooms you know, on one level and walk-in showers and you know so we were thinking about us it's not like we're um that close to retirement but we're going to invest in a home we want to make it something that we can live in for a long time but but also could meet the needs of other family members. And my mom actually, as we record this within 24 hours, will be moving to be closer to us after, gosh, I think it's been 20 years since we lived in the same town. So it's going to be a new stage of life for us. She's not moving in right away, but she's going to live just a couple of miles away because life has just gotten a little bit harder for her to live in an area that she loved and had a great community and lots of friends. But her her physical needs are changing and she's, she's independent. You know, she can drive she's you know engages with with friends and activities and things but she could just use a a little more family support now so it's a first stage in living out um, family life and in this this new way with my my mom closer to us that we think you know we'll ultimately end up with her living in our home and um then we'll see where where god takes us from there with that preface of essentially both of you ladies are again contributing to this conversation in unique ways and so it will be good to have both perspectives just as Cheryl cared for her parents now Tiffany is starting to provide extra care um, for her mom in this way 
you know, Cheryl, as I was reading through not only your chapter in He Restores My Soul, but also some of the articles that you have published for The Federalist and and beyond, I noticed a couple of major themes that continued to pop up. Ones that specifically got my attention were the themes of self-sacrifice, so that being one, the ongoing theme of obedience to the fourth commandment, which is Mm -hmm. to honor your father and mother, and then the theology of vocation. Are those themes that you... (laughs) You're the writer. Are those themes the major themes that you intended? Are there any additions? I think that's a good summation of the themes that seem to run through these pieces that I've written on this topic. You mentioned vocation, and I thought of this earlier when when Tiffany was talking about the human being versus the human doing. It reminded me of one of the best definitions of vocation that I've ever come across and which has been very clarifying for me before. And that's from another book that you guys are probably familiar with called Ladylike by Rebecca Curtis and Rose Adel with Concordia Publishing House. There's a chapter in there on vocation. And I mean, I think we talk rather loosely sometimes about vocation and, you know, so I could refer to myself my vocation as a musician or my vocation as a writer. But when you really think about it, those are things that I do rather than things that I am. Cause I could decide tomorrow to stop writing. I could decide tomorrow to stop being a musician, but in ladylike Rebecca and Rosie talk about vocation as something we can't just decide to stop doing. I am a mother. And I can't just decide that I'm not a mother anymore. I am a daughter. God has put you in. It's a place that God has put me. Yeah. Yeah. I am a sister. I am a wife. You know, so these are are things that are part of who I am. I am a Christian. These are part of who I am, not so much what I do. That was just kind of a revelation to me when I came across that in their book. I, I don't think it's wrong, you know, to say that I also have this vocation of writer and musician. But that, I think that's a different definition of vocation. It's a different kind of vocation. If we just really want to get to the core of what vocation is, I think we need to think about what we are. So that's that's a thought that came to me earlier. And then the fourth commandment, it comes up in these pieces because it's just so clarifying, so helpful especially if you just go read the large catechism, Luther and the large catechism on on the fourth commandment. It's just so clear and so pointed. I love how he just kind of says it over and over and over again, kind of the same thing in different ways over and over again for those of us that may have a little bit of trouble (laughs) latching on to it. I don't know if you want to read from any of, of the large catechism, but I did excerpt just a little bit here. And, and these are some passages that have spoken to me and been very helpful over the years. So we must therefore impress it upon the young that they should regard their parents as in God's stead. And remember that however lowly, poor, frail, and queer they may be, nevertheless, they are father and mother given them by God. They are not to be deprived of their honor because of their conduct or their failings. As somebody who, as I mentioned earlier, was not raised with a strong foundation of faith and was also raised in a household, which I talk a little bit about in He Restores My Soul, of a lot of sort of, I wouldn't call it a household of tranquility, blended family, lots of dysfunction, lots of issues. 
and without that grounding of faith. So, you know, it's a temptation to me just to say, well, I didn't have that great of an upbringing, you know, so do I really owe my mom this care at this point in her life? And Luther says, absolutely, yes, you do. It doesn't matter if you didn't have great parents, you know, this is your duty to them. They brought you into this world. They changed your diapers. They made sure that you didn't get tossed out on the side of a mountain and left to die from exposure, right? So these are your earthly parents. These are your gifts from God. And this is what you owe to them. No ifs, ands, or buts. Whenever I started doubting that, back to the large catechism. (laughs) Always a helpful reference. You know, it's often not quoted, the large catechism. We typically tend to kind of gravitate towards the small catechism, and there's nothing wrong with that. But people are missing out if they don't use the large catechism as a way to expound on what Luther has already provided for us in the small catechism. And you're right. He essentially just tells it as is and really doesn't leave a lot of gray or murky areas for us to live within that commandment. God's pretty clear about our role as child and clear about a parent's role towards their children as he Mm -hmm. talks about the fourth commandment. You know, just kind of backtracking, if I may, because I find the theology of vocation to be exceptionally compelling when it comes to life issues. You had written in another article for Sister, Daughter, Mother, Wife, How Clear Is Our Vocation, Lord? until it isn't. Oh, I forgot about that one. <laughs> oh, well, let me jog your memory. I don't know if you are the person who, as you write this, come come up with the titles or if your editor at the time does, but these are some really clever titles that immediately mm-hmm. draw you in. So if you're the author of the titles as well, I, I'm just very impressed. So good. So catching. That may have been Anna Musman, who's the, the primary editor of that blog. I helped with some editing of it as well, but it was primarily her creation and she was the primary editor. So she may have come up with that title. I don't remember. As we talked about vocation before in the ladylike book, you also mentioned the theology of vocation is that we are given certain roles by our Lord, roles to play and certain work to do. And this is a gift from our heavenly father by which he provides order to our days. I truly have never thought about vocation is providing order to our days. So that in itself was enlightening to me. But then you write this, it's no wonder that we struggle in our vocations, these patterns of thinking and acting that have so defined us and directed our steps change. How does your vocation as daughter change when you become the caretaker for your parents and specifically for your mother? How did that change? Mm -hmm. And then what things also stayed the same? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's most challenging and confusing about this whole transition is because this person that has been the primary caregiver for you or was the primary caregiver for you, you know, in your childhood is now the one that is in need of care. So you still look at the individual, the parent as your mother, and you still want to go to that parent for the kinds of things that as a daughter, you're used to receiving from your mom, you know, whether it's encouragement, advice, those kinds of things. And yet that parent is potentially less and less able to provide those kinds of things. So it really is a a confusing kind of role reversal to sort 
that all out. I don't know that I have any great <laughs> answers for how to do that, you know, other than just to, to, to keep on each day doing what God has given you to do on that day. As I mentioned earlier, my mom did deal with some pretty severe depression in the later years of her life and was not always a pleasant person to be around the last few years. Um, and so tried all of us greatly, you know, just as far as patience and, and trying to continue to be cheerful and encourage when the person that you're trying to encourage is just not receptive to it. It wears you down. It's, it's a challenge emotionally to continue to bear up under that. I think my best advice to my fellow Christians would be be in church, be in the word, you know, because that's where you're going to find that strength and encouragement when you're not getting it from the parent that perhaps you one day got it from. Well, as someone who's very greedy for advice right now, mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you. And, and I, I, as you're talking about this, I'm, I'm noticing, you know, you know, so stuff brought up change. Well, it's not just you that was changing, your mom was changing. And I know, you know, I see that. I mean, we, we all see that with the people around us. We all change in our behaviors and maybe the, the way our personality manifests in our communication and our behaviors. So I've noticed that with, with my parents as they've gotten older. I've noticed it with my kids. I've noticed it with my husband, myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's easier to notice with the other people <laughs> just, um, for, for ourselves. But you know, so there's a lot of change going on. So there's, there's that whole... Um, you know, we have to, you know, communicate our way through it and, and notice things about one another that they, they may not notice about themselves. So mm-hmm. that can be a little tricky, you know, but it, as you're bringing up your advice and to, you know, be at church and, and to be fed by the, the word and, and the sacraments, I'm also thinking too that, you know, as we talked about burdens a few minutes ago, we're, we're not the only ones taking on these burdens like there's this dispersion of burden and, and jesus talked about that that his yoke is is light and i don't i don't know for sure if this is an, an appropriate theological connection but i suspect um and i tried it out with some um, really smart people like seminary professors and they haven't told me i was wrong galatians 6 2 the burden bearing that we we do with one another to fulfill the law of christ i mean this this can be how this yoke of burden bearing gets lighter so we you know we go to church we're strengthened by the word and sacraments but we're also you know, taking the burdens that we bring up to the altar of the Lord. And Luther wrote about that, all become one cake in a sermon that he, he wrote. You know, when we share our burdens with the people around us at church too. So our burdens become lighter because we share them with other people and, you know, we're just dispersing those burdens together. And, and it's that made a little bit lighter for, you know, when, when we turn back around and we go home and we do this caring for our um, family members and our loved ones and our vocations, mm-hmm. we're strengthened and able to do that um, because we have the another <laughs> uh, book of Concord phrase, you know, consolation of the brethren. Well, I mean, and that oftentimes is used for, for pastors in their vocation as, as shepherds of God's flock. But um, I, I think the concept too can apply to, to lay people who are consoling one another and, mm-hmm. and bearing these birds that we, because we console one another, we're, we're more able to, to do this work that God lays in front of us. Mm-hmm. Primarily then receiving strength to carry on the rules of our given vocations through God's sustaining word, his bread, his body, the wine, the blood, and continued communion with the saints. Very wise advice from both of you. This just made me think of, I had forgotten about this memory for a long time, but I I do remember being in church one day 
And I don't quite remember when it was in relation to where my mom was in her progression at the end of her life, but it was, I think it was fairly close to the end. And, and I had had a, I think a particularly rough day with her, rough exchange with her. She was being particularly difficult and resistant to my encouragement. And I just remember being in church and feeling very sad, very down about this. And just out of the blue, the uh, lady next to me that I don't even think I knew that well, but an older woman, maybe close to the same age of my mom, but more energetic, you know, in church, still quite mobile, just turned to me at the end of church that day. And I don't even remember what kind thing she said to me, but it was something along the lines of, oh, you know, you're such a lovely singer or you're such a lovely woman or just something kind like that. And it was, it was like the thing that I needed to hear from an older woman at that time that my mom was just not able to really tell me anymore. And, you know, happened right there in church. And I, you know, I'm hearing through God's people that encouragement that I needed to hear. And it wasn't even just strictly encouragement from, but from an older woman that had that, that faith and that joy in the Lord that I longed for to hear from my mom, but really wasn't hearing from her. So just great the way the Lord works sometimes. Through his family, which in a, in a truer sense, our church family is the family. <laughs> and we were are given these smaller family units by which to grow his larger family, that is the church. And Cheryl and Tiffany, you both alluded to this and the fact that our first vocation as human beings is to be a child and then hopefully immediately thereafter <laughs> to become a child of God through baptism. But we we really first start out our life and our vocations through receiving. And so the early parts of our years are vocations that receive care from another. And once you become an adult and enter into um, maybe marriage or as a parent, and then now in the season of life where you care for your own parents, that kind of role and vocational responsibility shifts a bit in that now, rather than primarily receiving through the parent-child relationship, you're primarily giving. And that doesn't Mm -hmm. alter your vocation as daughter, Cheryl or Tiffany, but it certainly changes uh, how you are to live within those vocations. So I can imagine that shift would be a hard transition. Mm-hmm. And and one that I think that you have written on, on beautifully and given advice in very wise ways of, of how to make that transition faithfully. You know, even as we talk about the theology of vocation, the second table of the law, so commandments four through ten, really often go hand in hand. Uh, we learn what it is to be in relation to our neighbor and then more precisely how to serve them and honor God. And so then when it comes to the fourth commandment, which you have woven into several of of articles on this, what do we learn from the fourth commandment and from scripture about how parents are to be toward children? And does anything change in regards to fulfilling the fourth commandment when our vocations change to become caregivers of our parents? Well, if we continue with the large catechism in that just a little bit farther down in the same passage that I read earlier, Luther actually does address the parents and how they are to treat their children. So he says, in addition, it would be well to preach to the parents also, and such as bear their office, 
as to how they should deport themselves toward those who are committed to them for their government. For although this is not expressed in the Ten Commandments, it is nevertheless abundantly enjoined in many places in the scripture. And God desires to have it embraced in this commandment when he speaks of father and mother, for he does not wish to have in this office and government knaves and tyrants, nor does he assign to them this honor that is power and authority to govern, that they should have themselves worshipped, but they should consider that they are under obligations of obedience to God, and that first of all, they should earnestly and faithfully discharge their office, not only to support and provide for the bodily necessities of their children, servants, subjects, etc., but most of all, to train them to the honor and praise of God. You know, the large catechism is so wonderful because there's so much more explanation here, and um, you know, again, addresses not only the children's duty to the parents, but the parents' duty to the children. So you asked about, does the vocation change? I don't think the vocation changes. The parent is always the parent. The child is always the child. I just think, you know, the way that we behave within those vocations, the needs change, the circumstances change, the relationships change, you know, so the way that we perform within those vocations may change by necessity, but I don't think the vocations change. The child is always the child. The parent is always the parent it, w- within, you know, a given relationship. Thanks for bringing that up because, yeah, in, in the Bible, I don't see any time limits on mm-hmm. it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we, our parents don't ever stop being our parents. We don't mm-hmm. ever stop being their children. I mean, I recognize this in, in my parenting my adult children now. I mm-hmm. thought, oh, it's going to be so easy when they grow up and they move out and they become all independent and, oh, my work will be done. Oh, well, nope, <laughs> nope, nope. I'm just a parent of an adult now mm-hmm. and I have to change, but I, I still feel the same way about them. I you know, love them intensely. They still come to me to learn. And I just training them and teaching them how to be adults mm-hmm. now as they're adults. So, boy, my kids are going to listen to this and may, they may not like that. <laughs> but but it's, it, it's, it's not in a directive sort of way now. Mm-hmm. It's more in a you know, collaborative, we talk through things and, mm-hmm. and, and they help me too. And, I, and I, I do learn from them, but it doesn't mean that they have become the parent. And I, and I think the same thing as, as when I'm, I'm hearing you describe um, for me in these coming weeks and months and years with my mom, I'm not going to um, become the parent. Because I, I think sometimes you see that in our culture with, uh, oh, well, you, you reverse roles. Now you're the parent of your parents. And and that's not what Luther described in the large catechism. That's not what we see in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom will remain my parent. I'll be her daughter. We may have to engage differently. I mean, I may um, I don't have to now, but I may have to help her with medications. I may have to go to the doctor's offices with her. But that doesn't mean that I've treating her like she's my child. So right. how do I adjust my vocation in there so that I still honor her in the same way? Titus chapter 2 was something coming to mind where it talks about um, the mature women teaching the younger women. on um, This verses um, 3 through 5 in Titus chapter 2. I often think of that when, as, a, as a deaconess when I would visit people in nursing homes. I need to be in a posture of learning from these really experienced saints of the Lord. I can still continue to learn from my parent, even if I'm doing the caregiving. Mm-hmm. And, and vice versa, any, any you know older woman I come across and the um, authorities mm-hmm. um, in my life. Mm-hmm. 
Cheryl, I also dusted off the cobwebs of a, another 2015 article. This title may jog your memory or, or you may have already dug it up, but you, <laughs> you call this this article, Aging Parents, the Fourth Commandment and the Jacket I Refuse to Wear. Oh boy, yes. Yes. So the jacket, and I encourage everybody to go to this article and read it, but the jacket was that you were a 50-some-year-old woman, your mother living with you. It was a cold or wet day, and your mom said, don't forget your jacket on the way out, and you bristled against that because you're a 50-year-old woman. You can make up your own mind about whether you should be wearing a jacket or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so this is a humorous illustration, but... What about kind of the bigger issues where you have someone living in your home and there's nothing like living under the same roof to really brush up against another and cause irritation with each other as a family? Mm. And you mentioned, you know, your mom could be cantankerous and uh, sometimes not very pleasant. Well, how do you honor the fourth commandment even in those times or even if you don't want to wear your coat because you can make up your own mind. <laughs> what do you what do you do? And how do you how do you balance the dual parts of the fourth commandment as honoring your parent as an adult? Yeah, I for you you're digging up all kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> I had forgotten that there were um, several pieces on this topic on sister, daughter, mother, wife. I had totally forgotten about those articles. So I'll have to go back and reread them now too. So that was during a time when we were actually, um, we had lived in Illinois for a number of years. And then my husband took a call to a parish in Oklahoma. We moved to Oklahoma and my mom was living with us at the time. So she moved with us and we didn't immediately find a house that we wanted to buy right off the bat. So we, we lived in a rental house for at least a year, maybe, maybe a couple of years. I can't quite remember now. Um, and it was a smaller home. Yeah. So we were quite, um, squeezed in to this small home, all kind of under each other's noses, under each other's feet, small kitchen. And so it just, I think made everything a little bit bigger than it otherwise would have been. And of course, you know, when you're living with your mom, you're going to hear those kinds of things, those kinds of reminders. And I see it in myself now with my own older children. You just become so accustomed as a mother to giving that kind of reminder, you know, and when you've done it for so many years, it's it's very hard to turn it off. And so that's all she's, you know, what was often doing. But when you're crunched together in a small house and again, you're, you know, in your fifties and you have grown children and it goes on, you know, many times during the day, it, it does start to grate on you. And I think the answer is just bite your tongue, you know, because is she saying anything offensive? Is she trying to offend? You know, what is she's expressing concern about you as her child? And so it doesn't really matter if you're the 50 year old woman that doesn't want to be reminded. And I'm not suggesting that I always did this perfectly, (laughs) you know, but I think the proper response is, you know, to either smile, say, thanks, mom. Or if you can't bring yourself to, to do at least that, no response, you know, nod, move on. It's, it's not a big deal. I like that you don't have to say everything going through your head. It actually right. could be a sin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, a, it's still a sin if it's in your head, but it makes it even maybe more, it might impact more people if it mm-hmm. comes out your mouth. We sometimes have a code word in our house 
and we'll say Teflon, like let, we just let it slide right mm-hmm. off, right? Like we're just Teflon, just mm-hmm. let, let it slide off. You don't have to, you don't have to respond. You don't have to pick up that bomb of a phrase that was just dropped on you. Mm-hmm. Let it slide. <laughs> Here's another one. We don't say Teflon, but we say quack, quack like a duck, you know, just oh. let, just let the rain, the rainwater rolls off the duck's feathers. So just quack. Just quack. <laughs> <laughs> Like that. <laughs> Both two really useful phrases that if you're mm-hmm. in a family, which everyone is, bear in mind. Those are good to recall. <laughs> Finally, Cheryl, what did you learn through the process of simultaneously bringing your mom in and then also raising children? What did you learn about self-sacrifice and sacrificial love? Maybe what did your kids learn that you may have not otherwise without having the burden of caring for your mom? Well, we all learned, well, I guess we, I, I shouldn't say we learned because we knew this already, but we were reminded um, in many and various ways that we are sinners in need of a savior, you know, so bringing a parent into the home can bring out the best in you and it can bring out the worst in you, you know, so this is why it's important to, to be in church, um, receiving word and sacrament constantly because you come face to face on a daily basis with your sinful nature in this situation. Absolutely. It was just a great blessing to our family. I mean, there's, there is time that we had with my mom that we would not have had otherwise, you know, if, if she had remained in her own home or, or several States away in a different state. So we had this wonderful blessing of time that I just still almost feel guilty about that, you know, that I got that some of my siblings did not get to enjoy with her. I mean, my children, my youngest especially, you know, by the time my mom was really declining, my two older kids were already out of the house away at college. So they would come back and um, interact with her some, but especially my youngest was there, you know, through all of her final days. I mean, one of my most beloved photos is of Evan sitting by his grandma's bed. And this is when we brought her home for hospice care. And so it's a hospital bed in her room. And he spent hours sitting with her, you know, reading to her, singing to her, holding her hand. You know, I I don't think that I, I don't know that I went to a funeral, possibly until I went to my dad's funeral. I'm trying to remember if I went to a funeral, you know, and I was already in my 20s, 20s at that time. You know, my kids have been to all their grandparents' Um, well, three of their grandparents' funerals now, but but Evan particularly had that experience at the age of 12 of sitting at the bedside of somebody who's dying. And, you know, on the one hand, so, so hard and so sad. And, you know, why would you want to put your child through that? And yet, you know, he knows how to do that now. You know, I'm looking for Evan to, well, and my other kids as well, of course, but they're all well-trained in how to sit at a dying person's bedside and I trust that they will be there at mine and at my husband's when the time comes and they'll know what to do because they've seen that now. So compassion Mm -hmm. has grown and mercy shared. I I think Mm -hmm. that's um, beautiful. And and it's something in our society, we we get a little segmented, you know, the younger people are in school and the uh, middle-aged people are in work and the older people are somewhere they're at home or, or, or maybe they're in senior centers and things like that. Um, and so to have that multi-generational experience, I mean, one place in our society where, where 
all the generations are, are together is in our congregations, mm-hmm. right? They're in, in church. And so, you know, we, we get that. Um, and some of us don't have family that live near nearby. And, and so we can still have that opportunity to be family to, to those who are in our congregations and give our younger children an opportunity to, to be at the bedside or, or people of, of different ages. But I'm remembering too when my father-in-law was in his, his last months on earth, our, our daughter, our oldest daughter happened to be living with them at the time she was going to, to college and asked her grandparents, you know, rather than renting a place if she could live with them. And those were very precious months. But but now my my daughter, you know, really um, comfortable being with people when mm-hmm. they're aging, when they're ill. Um, I know that when that time comes for me, you know, she will be well equipped. And I think that that's, those are opportunities that we all can can look for I you know as Steph pointed out earlier um, not everyone ought to must bring their older family members into their homes mm-hmm. um, God's given us great gifts and resources and um, senior care facilities um, independent living assisted living um, memory support units you know we've got some great LCMS recognized service organizations providing these services. My son grew up, his mom was a director of nursing and nursing homes. So he grew up as a little boy, like going to nursing homes. And um, he just saw everyone there as like, a, you know, a grandma and a grandpa. So there's there's all kinds of, of ways. And there should never be be guilt if you don't um, want to or, or can't um, care for your parents in your, your home. But it's um, still good to be involved in their lives, even if they're living in these other places. And to share that compassion and that, that mercy. And it can be uncomfortable for people who do need to kind of stretch and grow in that way. But to, to have done it at such a young age, like your Evan, mm-hmm. what a blessing he'll be throughout his life to mm-hmm. other people because he's comfortable with that. Right. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, I, I know you have several pieces of advice because in your article, Aging Parents, the Fourth Commandment in the Jacket I Refuse to Wear, you <laughs> end it by giving several pieces of advice to adults who are going through what you had gone through. But what is one piece of advice that you would give to Tiffany, that you would give to people listening as they are nearing a point in time where they become the caretaker for their parents? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we've already talked a lot about, you know, being in church and, and taking that support that you're that only your church family can give you. So that's that's a huge one. You know, accept that you're going to fail. It's it's not always going to be easy. It's not going to, to always go smoothly. And that's okay. And that's that's what church is there for. That's what confession and absolution are there for. Don't be afraid to ask for help when you need it. And that might just be the help of mm-hmm. talking to somebody, you know, like we're doing here, somebody that's been through what you're going going through at the time. Um, it might be professional help. It could be, you know, if your parent needs some financial planning advice, you know, if you're looking at taking on managing your parents' finances, my mom's finances were pretty simple. So um, it wasn't anything that I had to get financial professional advice to, to sort of manage on her behalf. But, you know, that might be something that considering what your situation is, you might want to pursue legal counsel or financial counsel for managing your parents' affairs, you know. So seek the advice where you can find it from the people that are, you know, well-suited to give it to you. Have somebody to talk to, you know, have somebody to go to. You know, it might be your spouse, but they're right there in the midst of this challenge with you. So it might need to be somebody that's a little bit more removed from the situation. Thank you, Cheryl. And thank you, 
Tiffany for co-hosting today and Cheryl for joining as our guest. I think if I want to offer something in summary, it's that the idea of being a burden to one another is a part of our Christian theology. It's biblical. The idea of not wanting to be a burden to others, particularly among the family of believers, is not a Christian approach to suffering or to transitions in in life or asking for for help. These are all things that Christians are called to bear with one another. If I may offer up, because the article that you wrote for the Federalist, Why I Want to Live Long and Burden My Children, I also dug up another article by Lutheran bioethicist Gilbert Mylander, and his title is very unique too. He says, I want to burden my loved ones. And this is what he writes. Families would not have the significance they do for us if they did not, in fact, give us a claim upon each other. At least in this sphere of life, we do not come together as autonomous individuals. We simply find ourselves thrown together and asked to share the burdens of life while learning to care for each other. It's therefore understandable that we sometimes chafe under these burdens. If, however, we also go on to reject them, we cease to live in the kind of moral community that deserves to be called a family. Here, more than in any other sphere of life, we're presented with unwanted and unexpected interruptions to our plans and projects. He's honest here. I do not like such interruptions any more than the next person. Indeed, a little less, I rather suspect. But it is still true that morality consists in large part in learning to deal with the unwanted interruptions to our plans. And here's the real zinger. I have tried, subject to my limits and weaknesses, to teach that lesson to my children. Perhaps I will teach it best when I am a burden to them in my dying. And Cheryl, you have so faithfully cared for your parents in their aging and in their dying. And Tiffany is entering this stage as well. Thank you for offering your wisdom, reminding us that we are a family of believers who are to bear one another's burdens and that self-sacrifice And dying to oneself and caring for another is the mark of a Christian. So thank you for providing that example for us. Thank you for walking us through part of your story. And thank you for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here with you. It was really a joy to have this conversation. Thanks for your wisdom, Cheryl, and and your advice. You're very welcome. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. And don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. New episodes drop twice each month. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Friends for Life LCMS. And finally, listeners, we want to hear from you. Do you have an idea about a guest you'd like to hear from or a topic you want talked about? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that introduces listeners to life issues by introducing them to friends who stand for life. 